Open up in your Bibles to uh, 1 Timothy. Uh, Around bedtime, in my family, sometimes we get to read a little bit. And about a year and a half ago, we read a book called Little Pilgrim's Progress. You've heard of Pilgrim's Progress. Well, this is Little Pilgrim's Progress, which is basically Pilgrim's Progress, but for kids. And uh, I would recommend it, if you had little ones, to read Little Pilgrim's Progress. We read through it. Uh, the kids wanted more every time. Uh, maybe it was just a ploy for them to stay up longer, but they wanted us to read it at night, and we finished it. And then just recently, we had finished a different book at bedtime, and they started asking again for Little Pilgrim's Progress. So we started reading a few weeks ago. And there's this part in Pilgrim's Progress where little Christian, on his way to the celestial city, he's going through certain difficulties, he's troubled by various people who join him for a little bit and then leave. He comes to a place called the Palace Beautiful. If you've read it, maybe you've You're familiar with the palace, beautiful. One of my daughters in particular was waiting for the scene with the palace, beautiful. Because at the palace, beautiful, there's these ladies that are in charge of this palace and they take care of little Christian on his journey. There's a mother named Discretion and three daughters named Charity and Prudence and Piety and they come and they take care of him in his his needs while he's on his journey. And we've been reading through this section of the book, and as I'm reading, I I love to know what the author was intending to convey in this allegory. And so I went, and I had a suspicion, but I wanted to confirm it. What is the palace beautiful? Because the whole story is meant to help us understand the Christian life. And so what is the palace beautiful meant to represent? And so I had this sneaking suspicion, and it was confirmed when I went online and did a quick little search, that the palace beautiful in the life of Christian is meant to represent the church. I thought, what a beautiful picture of the church. Here's Christian on his journey to the celestial city, and as he's going through the difficulties of life, this place where he comes to find rest restoration, rejuvenation, to get re-motivated, to continue on the long and hard journey that's before him. It's the beautiful time of repose and people are caring for him on his journey. And John Bunyan, who wrote that book, intended it to be a picture of the church. Now, I don't know about your experience in the church, But I love that that's what was conveyed in that old book. Because that is the picture of what the church ought to be. A picture of a place of rest and repose where we regather ourselves, where we remind ourselves of what is true. As a congregation, we come together and help each other in this journey. And the church is as beautiful as it's meant to be, like the palace beautiful is, can also go sour. And maybe you've been in a church that didn't really feel like the palace beautiful. You didn't show up and you didn't really feel like you were being helped or inspired. 
cared for. And often that's the case in, in a church that it's just a place maybe where there's division, uh, difficulty, strife. Maybe it's more stressful to show up to church. And maybe the temptation is to try to stay home because I'm going to be more stressed if I show up to church. And so I was thinking about our church and I was thinking about how do we make sure that this church is like the palace beautiful? How do we make sure this church is a place where people are finding spiritual rest, encouragement, even challenged when they need to be challenged, convicted where they need to be convicted, but comforted and encouraged to continue the journey set before us as Christians on our way to the celestial city. And as I'm studying 1 Timothy, I'm realizing that what Paul is saying to Timothy, and what all the things he's writing, what Paul wants for Timothy is for Timothy to create in Ephesus, that's where the church was, that Timothy was serving, he wants the church in Ephesus to be less filled with division, that's what it was happening, less uh, encumbered by false teachers, and more filled with those things, those ingredients which make for peace, which make for love, which make for repose and rest and inspiration, the right kind of feeling that a church should have in its atmosphere. And so as we're working our way through this, we're seeing a lot of the principles that we need to embrace as a church family. If we want this to be that place, it comes down to all of us working together for those goals and toward that end. And so we're going to be in chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 18 to 20, and I'm going to see, I'm going to point out some four principles here. Now, what's interesting to me in, in Bunyan's book, <clears throat> when Christian comes to the palace beautiful, there's a man that's in charge. Remember what that man's name was? He's the one that kind of oversees the palace beautiful. His name is Watchful. I thought, what a good word. And I want to kind of frame that, this, this text with this word, Watchful. Because what we're going to see here is that Timothy, who is leading this church from out of an unhealthy place to a healthy place, there's an idea that's kind of in this text we're looking at of he needs to be watchful of certain things. He needs to pay close attention to certain things. And really, as we understand the role of the pastor and the role of the church, it's not just the pastor needs to do this. The church body needs to be watchful in certain areas. And so we're going to look at four areas where the church needs to be watchful. If we are to care for the church, if we were to make sure this place is like the palace beautiful, we want to make sure that we are all being watchful in the ways the Bible tells us to be watchful. So, so turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 18. I'm going to read the section that we're looking at, and then we're going to look at these four principles. Verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme." Here's our first principle for creating this environment in the church that's healthy, 
like the palace of beautiful. Here's number one. We need to be watchful of the gospel preached. Timothy is given this charge. I want you to see this in the text. In verse 18, Paul says this charge. And last week, though we spent most of our time on that little phrase, wage the good warfare, and we painted a picture of spiritual warfare in the church, uh, I did mention that this word charge is a unique and even weighty word. It's a word that's used often in military language, in military settings. When you had a superior officer tell an inferior officer what to do, and it wasn't coming to that person as a suggestion, the word was charge. It was more like a command. And Paul is speaking to this young pastor of this church with a charge, like Paul's the general and Timothy's the private and the general's telling him he's got to get in there and he's giving him a command non-optional this is something he must do it is a charge handed down from Paul Paul an apostle sent by Jesus Christ Jesus sends Paul now Paul is sending Timothy he's giving him a charge and this charge it says here the charge is something entrusted to him Uh, you think of something's entrusted it's a responsibility It's like someone hands you something and says, take care of this. This is your responsibility. Don't let this fall to the wayside on your watch. This is your stewardship. This belongs to you. It's almost as if he hands something to him and says, I'm not going to be here. I'm not going to be able to take care of all these issues. This is your issue now. This charge I give to you. It is entrusted to you. Jesus used that word entrust when he died on the cross. Into your hands I commit my spirit. I entrust my spirit. It was a full giving over. Paul is giving something to Timothy. It is now his responsibility. You say, well, what's the charge? What is it that he's charging? The text and the context, if you started in the very beginning with us here, you would remember that that word has been used more than once. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge, same word, certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Look at verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This charge that has been handed down from Paul to Timothy is a charge, it kind of has two aspects. First, in verse 3, he's charged to make sure that the gospel is not being compromised by different doctrine. And secondly, the aim of his charge is to produce love in the hearts of the people. And we'll see later in context that the way that happens is by the preaching of sound doctrine, namely, the doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the first thing that this charge reminds us is he is to be watchful that the gospel is preserved and the gospel is protected. This is his stewardship. This is what Timothy has been entrusted. We must not drift from the gospel. We must not let the gospel be buried in endless myths and genealogies and speculations like what was happening in this church. Paul wants the gospel to be the main thing, the thing. I mean, the one thing. If if we're defined by one thing, Paul says it should be the gospel. And if there's anything that's getting in the way of it, you got to shut that down. And if there's anything that's hindering your proclamation of it, you got to get that out of the way. 
Because the gospel must be preached. That's what he is saying. This is the charge. Nobody preach false doctrine. Let's make sure we're protecting sound doctrine, and we've got to make sure Christ is held high. This, friends, is the first ingredient to a church that is one that brings inspiration, that brings rest, that brings repose on the soul, it brings healing to your heart, is a church that puts Jesus Christ front and center. Not about fads, not about trends, not about the latest gimmick that can draw church attendance. None of those things will actually make this church a place where your deepest longings are met and addressed. One thing will do that. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you, do you understand the, 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 the effect of the soul on the soul? When you sit under the gospel week in, week out, do you understand the effect it has on us as a body? That we behold Jesus Christ in his glory again and again and again. I tell you, we begin to become admirers of Christ. And what happens when you're an admirer of someone? You begin to imitate that person. In all his greatness, we reflect on his perfect life and we say, oh, if I could be like him. We reflect on his substitutionary, sacrificial death in the place of sinners. We say, oh, what a glorious reality. My sin's gone, placed on him, paid in full. This Jesus for me? And it gives us confidence. And then we see Christ rose from the dead. He's alive right now. He's head of the church. He's an intercessor for me. He's my great high priest. And we say, oh, what confidence I can have in this Savior. All these realities of the gospel. And we can put our faith fully and completely in Christ. And I tell you, you sit under that again and again and again. And you begin to fill your heart with praise, adoration, joy. It begins to grow you to be more like him. See, that's what the gospel does in chapter 1, verse 5. The aim of our charge is love. Love, true love, issuing from a pure heart. How does that happen? It's from sitting before the feet of Christ and hearing him again and again in his word and what he has done to save sinners. Charles Spurgeon tells of the time when uh, someone came up and complained to him that all his sermons sounded the same. Because he was so frequently preaching Christ in his sermons. And one guy came up to him and said, Mr. Spurgeon, I'm not really interested anymore. But if you preach something different, I might show up again to your church services. Spurgeon remarked as eloquently as uh, he often does. Spurgeon said, ah, but he will never come while this tongue moves for a sermon without Christ in it. A Christless sermon, a brook without water, a cloud without rain, a well which mocks the traveler, a tree twice dead, plucked up by the root, a sky without a sun, a night without a star. If it were, it were a realm of death, a place of mourning for angels and laughter for devils. Oh, Christian, we must have Christ. Do see to it that every day when you wake, you give a fresh savor of Christ upon you by contemplating His person. Live all the day trying as much as lieth within you to season your hearts with Him. And then lie down at night with Him upon your tongue. This is the point of the church. We make Christ known. We preach Him 
We preach Christ crucified. How shameful, friends, would it be if you showed up to a church that didn't preach Christ Sunday in, Sunday out, the best message in all the world was held back. That would be worse than someone knowing the cure from cancer and holding it to themselves. The deepest longings of the human soul can only be addressed by Christ. And so the charge, this intense word that Paul writes to Timothy, you must protect the gospel. You must preserve it so that it can be proclaimed. Be watchful that no one and nothing gets in the way of the gospel. And that's the first principle for a church that would be healthy, is that Christ is preached, the gospel is clarified, that we become a people who meditate on the glories of the Savior. Here's our second principle for a healthy church here. Be watchful of the appointment of leaders. I want you to see this in the text in verse 18. Be watchful of the appointment of leaders. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. This is a word of affection and love and trust. That Paul really does trust Timothy. He calls him his own child. He says, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Now these words might feel odd to our ears this morning. He's mentioning prophecies. And he's saying that there were certain prophecies made about this young man, Timothy. And Paul's reminding Timothy of these prophecies because they ought to encourage him to wage the good warfare. You say, what is Paul talking about? Prophecies. Well, there's a few sections in these letters that Paul wrote to Timothy where he refers to a a moment in time where Timothy went through something like what we might call an ordination service. Uh, where, where Timothy was identified as a man equipped to do the work of the ministry and was recognized and sent to do it. In 1 Timothy 4.14, you could just turn over a page and see it in your own Bible if you want, uh, Paul reminds him again of this moment. He says, Do not neglect the gift you have which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And so there's this moment in time when the elders laid their hands on Timothy and they recognized his uh, ability, they they recognized his spiritual gift, and they, it says in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 6, it says, it refers to this kind of same moment again, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. This moment At some point previous to the writing of this letter, Timothy, he had been faithful. We see that in Acts. And he was now being identified as one who had gifts. And somehow there were these prophecies that came to the church and to these elders that made it very clear that Timothy was the man for the job to serve. And so these elders worked together, prayerfully recognized him as being spiritually gifted, and then you might say, if we were to use the modern vernacular, ordained Timothy to the ministry of the church. This happened in Acts 13 with Saul, uh, then Paul, 
And he was the same kind of thing. Barnabas and him were identified by the church. It says the Holy Spirit spoke to them, and then the church laid hands on them, and they sent them off. This is how God was working in the New Testament. The Spirit would identify particular men to lead. Those people would uh, be um, recognized by the church and by the leaders of the church. They would be prayed for. The elders would lay their hands on them, and then those people would be sent out to minister. This apparently is what happened not only to Paul and Barnabas, but also here to Timothy. This is instructive here, just to think about the process that Timothy had to go through to be recognized as a minister of the gospel. Here's what he didn't do. He didn't find some spiritual gift inventory test online, get in his room by himself and pull out his pen and circle, yeah, I rank a five on this. I'm pretty good at preaching, I'm pretty good. Uh, counseling, no, don't really like dealing with people's problems, so I'm going to circle a one, but that's okay. I might fudge that. Uh, over here, and you go through, and you take this own little test. That, well, that wasn't really what he did. You know what he did? He didn't put himself forward. You see the context in Acts. Acts, Paul's the one who calls Timothy to himself. Hey, follow me. He recognizes him as faithful. You see this again and again, that this young man is just being faithful. He's, he's willing to serve. He's willing to be called. And then we see the church recognizing him. We see the elders coming around, laying their hands on him, praying for him, identifying his gifts, even sending him. This ordination thing. This is important. We don't assign ourselves callings. <laughs> we, we are not world experts on ourselves, Right? We're not the ones to sit back and say, here's my gift. Now, everybody needs to recognize my gift so I can do my thing. You don't want to be the type of person that says, I'm the guy that sings solos, so make sure I get a solo on Sunday morning, and then you actually sing a solo and you can't hold a tune. You don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be the person that says, I have this type of ministry, that this is what I do, and there's no need for it in the church. You, you, we are not self-appointed ministers of the gospel. We're not people who sit back, evaluate ourselves, and by whatever means, a gift test or just self-analysis, this is not the way God intended the church to identify leaders. The church identifies leaders when they are seeking to serve, when they're faithful in serving, and then the church is recognizing their gifts, and the leaders are saying, yes, this is someone worth watching. And then over time, that person is recognized as being not not only having the character that's required to serve, but having the competency. Timothy had to do this, and hey, it might have taken longer because that guy didn't get, hey, I need someone to fill the pulpit. Let's get them some guy up there, and he never had any opportunity in the past. No one really knew him. That's not what happened. Timothy, it was over the process of years that he proved himself. This is important for us. I remember meeting with a young man bright young man who had a lot of ambitions and wanted to do a lot for the Lord. And he began this apologetics ministry, a defense of the faith ministry. This is a high school kid. He built a website. He was writing material. He was starting a ministry. He was trying to recruit people to help and be a part of this thing. He was ambitious and I'm listening to him, and I'm just trying to get to know him a little bit. And, and over time, I'm asking him questions, and finally I ask him, hey, where do you go to church? He wasn't attending church anywhere. And as much as I admired the, the, the ambition, and I admired the zeal, I said, hey, man, 
I'm, I'm excited about your desire to serve the Lord. But here's what I'm going to encourage you to do is to go be a part of a godly church with godly leaders who can know you and help you along, that you can submit to them. And then I'm going to ask you to start serving in the body. I'm going to ask you to just do these things amongst people. And then, and as this happens, I think you'll either people will help you steer your zeal and passion in a direction that's more helpful for the church, or they'll recognize this as something that's valuable. Sadly, this kid didn't want to listen to my advice, and he was very much caught up in the individualistic approach to serving Jesus. He felt that this was the thing he must do. To this day, I don't even know if he's in a church anymore. I haven't heard of what's happened to that apologetics ministry. It's fallen by the wayside amongst other pursuits. We don't call ourselves to ministry. Uh, Ministers of the gospel, if they're true ministers of the gospel, are not man-made. These prophecies that Timothy or Paul is writing about are the work of the Holy Spirit. A Holy Spirit calls a man to be a pastor. The church is filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit in them affirms that call to the pastor. There's really two things that are happening when a man is being made a pastor. First, that man has to have the character and the competency and also that desire to do the work. If they don't have those things, then they shouldn't do it. But also what's happening is the church is working to identify those people and working to see those gifts and fan the flame of those gifts and encourage those gifts. I hope our church is filled with people who are looking around in the body, helping others know what they're good at, saying, you did an excellent job at that. Do it again and do it more often. Man, the Lord really blessed that Sunday school class you taught. Man, you're really good at encouraging people one-on-one. Continue in that. And just as Timothy was led by these elders to take this process, and and what Paul's doing is he's reminding them of that ordination service type thing. So all of us has various giftings and callings. And the church is the place where we find out what those things are. And so we ought to be a group of people that help each other identify what our gifts are. We don't learn those things in a vacuum. You can't learn them by a test. And so we've got to be involved in each other's lives. You've got to be serving. And out of our service, we identify what we're good at. And so this is another thing that Timothy is to be watchful of, that he needs to remember how he was appointed to service. And I think that is a model for the church in general that the church ought to be careful in how it appoints its leaders. And because once those people are appointed, it is an encouragement, hey, you've been identified by the church to serve. Now go and do it. And this is kind of what Paul is saying to Timothy, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them, because of how this happened, how the Spirit moved in the church, and how the Spirit called you to serve, now knowing that you've been put in this position, now go wage the war that God has called you to. Do it fearlessly. Do it knowing that that's where you're meant to be. And that's a lot of confidence now that they have, that Timothy is able to have, because he went through this process where God called him. So it's good to be watchful of the process by which we appoint leaders. Here's our third, third point here. Here's our third point here. If we're going to keep the church healthy like the palace beautiful, let's be watchful of our conscience. I want to focus on that. He says, 
This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, here it is, holding faith and a good conscience. Faith and a good conscience. Listen to this. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Part of Timothy's role and responsibility in serving this church and waging this warfare is to hold his faith. That means know what you believe and believe it strongly. Hold on. Don't let the doubt creep in. That's what Satan would love to happen where doubt just gets a foothold in the heart of the leader of the church like Timothy. And so hold on to the faith, but not only that, hold on to a good conscience. Hold on to a good conscience. See, Timothy's going to be in a difficult situation here. He already is. Remember, these elders are teaching false doctrine. There's strife and division. Uh, You get the evidence in chapter 6 that probably a lot of them are just money lovers, and they're in it for their own personal gain. This is a difficult church for Timothy to be in. And I imagine if he's going to start trying to make any changes or if he's going to start preaching the true gospel, he's probably going to get people who are resistant to him. This happens in churches. I remember sitting at a table, me and uh, the pastoral staff back in Simi when we were out there, we got um, lunch with a, a seasoned pastor who'd been in ministries for decades, and he was telling us some of his war stories. And if you ever get the chance to sit down with a pastor who's been in the ministry for decades, it's not me, someone else, go sit and talk to them about their war stories, and the, there's some remarkable things that happen, and sometimes they're just the saddest stories of churches being split or opposition in the church, things like that. And this pastor was telling us about this, this time when the elder board turned on him. It just didn't want him in the pulpit anymore. This man had been faithful. He was preaching the gospel, and the elders had different ideas of what the church should do. And he told her the story of how one of the elders was trying to trap him in his words. And so they're sitting at a lunch table, and this other elder had a kind of secret voice recorder going on. He's asking him all these hard questions, just trying to trap him and get the evidence and then show it to the church. I'm just reflecting on those things and going, man... Remember last week's spiritual war? That's real. And often the target is on the pastor. And Paul wants Timothy to know that. you got to wage the good warfare. And if you're going to wage the good warfare, you need to have, listen, a good conscience. The best defense against church opponents who, who want to bring you down, who want to find you doing something shady so they can call you on it and get you ousted is to walk with a good conscience, a clear conscience. See, faith is believing, but the clean conscience is so important that he cannot wage the good war without a good conscience. You say, what's the conscience? Conscience is something that alarms you to sin in your own life. It's something that will tell you something's not right. When I walk into this building and no one else is here and I'm the first one here, an alarm starts going off. Beep, beep, beep. And I got to go in, I got to unset it and, and fix that so it's not setting off the major alarm which will wake everyone up. Your alarm is your conscience. Your conscience is your alarm. When sin enters into your heart, into your mind, usually, if you have a sensitive conscience, the alarm goes off. You start to feel something. You, you maybe feel guilt or maybe feel shame. You need to feel, I need to get away from this. Listen, that's a good thing. 
Your conscience is a gift from God. It's meant to be something that encourages you to flee from sin and to get away from sin. But what happens if you never deal with the sin once it's in your heart, it would be like me walking into this building and the alarm starts to go off and I don't even deal with it. Suddenly I don't even hear the sound anymore. I'm just going to go on as if it didn't exist. And maybe that thing starts beeping and beeping louder and louder and it's trying to get my attention. But I'm just ignoring the conscience. Maybe long enough the battery just dies and I can't even hear the conscience anymore. This is what was happening in the church uh, that, that Timothy had to pastor. He was, some of the leaders, it says in 1 Timothy 4, 2, these people had a seared conscience. It's so callous that they didn't even feel uh, the, the, the guilt over there wrongdoing. And so on the opposite side that Timothy needs to have a sensitive one. You know how you have a sensitive conscience? You, you don't try to hide your sin. You don't try to blame shift. You're not covering anything up. You deal with it. You confess it. And if you don't deal with it, and if you don't confess it, if you try to act as if all is well when there's sin in your heart, it'll sear your conscience. Back in uh, Italy, when the Renaissance was happening, you had all kinds of sculptures that were being made by these artists. And when they would make these things, sometimes they would accidentally crack it when they weren't supposed to crack it. And you either throw the whole thing away, or you figured out some way to hide the crack. And one of the things they did was they'd get wax that was the same color as the marble they were using to sculpt, and they would get the wax, and they'd put it right in the crack. And when they'd do that, you couldn't even tell there was a crack anymore. And what would happen is you put these things out on display, and they would be beautiful. They would, they would stand, these sculptures that were being made were beautiful, but sometimes if they were set out in the sun, over time, the wax would melt away, and you'd see this sculpture that you thought was beautiful and perfect and flawless now is all being exposed. The, the word that got passed down into the English language was a word that originated sine, which means without, and sere, which means wax. We got our word sincere, which literally means without wax. Often the Bible is telling us to have a good conscience. It means a sincere conscience, a conscience that has no wax. In other words, it means this. There are no cracks in your conscience where you're trying to cover things up. Your conscience can stand the scrutiny of God and His holiness. Not that you're there in perfection. Not that you're there having attained the perfect righteousness of God. But that you're there not hiding anything. Do you have a conscience that way? That you can be honest in the way you evaluate yourself. That you are not hiding anything. I'm not asking if you have a perfect conscience. I'm not asking if you never sin. But is your conscience sincere? Is your conscience good in the sense that Paul is writing here? Your life and your obedience is sincere. No, it's not perfect, but you're not hiding anything. No, it's not perfect, but you're not trying to put up a front and make sure everything's good. See, a, a, a bad conscience would be this. You are doing things you know are wrong, but you're trying to live with a facade that says everything is right. To have an effective ministry in the church, 
Paul is reminding him, you must have a good conscience. You will not be able to withstand the difficulties of ministry and service if your conscience is guilty because you're always sinning and you're hiding your sin and you're worried that you might be exposed, you will have no effectiveness in the church of God. And that's true of Timothy, but that's true of you. And if you're a believer, your greatest desire is to glorify God, isn't it? And your greatest desire is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know that the Lord is head of the church, and so you want to love the church like Christ loves the church, and you want to serve the church because it is the bride of Christ. And if that's your desire, then friends, how's your conscience? It may be that you need to confess things first to God, and then in humility to other friends who will understand and who will help you They'll help you address the issues of the conscience. Because if you don't, look at, the, look at the gravity of the situation. By rejecting this, what? By rejecting their good conscience, they refused it, which means there was hidden issues in the lives of these people. They rejected this, and some have made shipwreck of their faith. If you have ever thought that you could go on in hiding sin, or in secret sin without any consequence? Let me just warn you through this text this morning that you will fall into ruin just like these men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who made a shipwreck of their faith because they did not deal with their inward sin. Be quick to confess your small sins and your big sins and be quick to run to the cross fully exposing yourself in all the cracks that you have and saying, it is Christ in Christ alone. And listen, Christ loves to save humble sinners. You come to Him with all your cracks and He will not give you wax. He will rebuild you. And He will begin to restore you in real life. And you will never be perfect here on earth, but there will be a day in heaven when He not just gives you wax, a temporary fix, that He restores you fully for what you were intended to be. But don't, if I may plead with you this morning, don't make a shipwreck of your faith by rejecting a good conscience. When the alarm sounds, deal with it by going to the cross and going to trusted friends. Lastly, we see that we need to be watchful of the church. We need to be watchful of the church. We see here in in verse 20, we already mentioned that these men who have made shipwreck of their faith, verse 20, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Hymenaeus, he's mentioned here and he's mentioned again at 2 Timothy. He's described as a false teacher. He was teaching something wrong about the resurrection. He was teaching that dead Christians had already resurrected. It was a heresy and he had to be removed from the church. Alexander, there's a few Alexanders mentioned in the New Testament, but this one is also probably mentioned in 2 Timothy. And he's described as someone who vigorously opposed Paul's teaching. So here we have two men that are described here as having blasphemed. They were teaching false doctrine, apparently in a teaching position in the church. They may have been elders. Now, I want you to hear something clear about these men. These were not true believers who are struggling with something. These are not believers who had honest questions, and they're trying to figure things out. 
Friends, if you're in a position like that, that's okay. And the church is not going to hand you over to Satan because you have some questions. In fact, the church wants to embrace you and answer questions and help you through difficulties and help you in those struggles. These men, on the other hand, were high-handed in their rebellion against the gospel. And they were teaching things that were clearly not true. They were teaching things that were antagonistic to the true gospel of grace. And so Paul, not, Timothy didn't even have to do this. Paul did it previously. Paul took his apostolic authority, put the hammer down and said, all right, Hamanus and Alexander, you're out of the church. He handed them over to Satan. That's what that means. If you think of the church as an outpost of the kingdom in a dark world, in the rest of the world, as John says, that the whole world is in the power of the evil one, as 1 John 5.19 says, then to be in the church is in, to be in a place of blessing where there's a sense of protection from all the onslaught of the demonic host and Satan's uh, wiles out in the world. There's a place of protection in the church. It is like the house beautiful, the palace beautiful in that sense. And so to be removed from the church is then to be given fully over to the world, to its systems, and even to the influence of Satan. So Paul, to protect the church from error, from people who would set a bad example, he has to hand them over to Satan. What that means is he has to excommunicate them from the church. These people who held a position of prominence had to be removed. To use our palace beautiful analogy, it would be like this. Hymenaeus and Alexander stomp on into the palace beautiful. They, they get that it's a nice place and they say, hey, I want to be in here. This is beautiful. This is a nice place, a, a place I can rest. But I want to use it for my own purposes. And so they begin trumping all over the place and using it for their own causes. And they take it over. And it's no longer a peaceful, restful, restful place where pilgrims on their journey to heaven can find respite in this hard world. In fact, when they take over the palace beautiful, it would be a place of division, outrage, speculation, fear. People would come and be stressed out of what might happen next. That's kind of what's going on here. And it would be wrong if no one in the church did anything about that. Uh, think of it this way, just to use another analogy. If you're a husband commissioned to protect your wife and kids, and an intruder breaks in and they begin terrorizing your family, they begin making threats, and your peaceful home is being compromised, listen, what do you call a husband who does nothing? What do you call him when he says, ah, I don't know, yeah, well, I don't want to step on anyone's toes, so I'm just going to kind of let him terrorize my kids. I'm going to let him terrorize my family. No. You'd call him a coward or a doormat or a wimp. You, you, would, you would reach down the depths of human language to find a word for that person because you're called to protect. And in the same way, what would it be like for a church to allow guys like Hymenus Alexander, who are teaching damnable doctrine, doctrine so bad that if you were to believe it, you would be cut off from Christ and, and not on the road to heaven anymore. You would be embracing a false gospel if those people still had positions of teaching, still had positions of authority, and no one did anything about it. It would be an absolute travesty. And so what Timothy has to do, and he's, he's seeing this because Paul is saying, I already did this. Timothy might have to do it himself again because there's evidence there's probably more than just these two guys in the church that are doing this. 
But he's got to protect the church. And the way he does this is with these people who are ruining the peace, who are upsetting the people, they have to be removed. Friends, this might be a hard truth for Americans in an American Christianity-shaped mindset to understand or accept, but it is biblical all throughout the New Testament, even the Old, that the people of God are to be pure. And when someone or something comes in, it is the responsibility of the leaders to do something about it. But even notice this. I want you to, I want you to see something. This isn't Paul punishing Hymenaeus and Alexander. This isn't vindictive getting back at them. Look at this. Notice the words. Whom I have handed over to Satan. Why? That they may learn not to blaspheme. This is so important. Paul's authoritative action to remove these men from the church was an act of love toward them. That they may learn. Paul is saying, I did something to teach them. I did something to help them. I don't want them to blaspheme. I don't want them to go down that road in opposition to their maker. I want them to learn. And the medicine they need now is an extreme medicine. It is what we call, what he calls, handing them over to Satan. They must be removed from the church. And I'm sure this was done in a way that communicated the desperation of Paul's longing for their souls to be saved. Because that's his intent. He wants them to learn not to blaspheme. He's doing this out of love for them. He's also, as we mentioned before, he's doing this out of love for the church because if he didn't protect his church, the church itself would be compromised. The wolves would be allowed into the sheep pen with hungry bellies and they'd be able to just have their stomach's delight as they feasted on the people that they had in the church just to feed their own carnal appetites. That's what would have been happening if Paul did nothing. And so what does this mean for us? It means we are watchful of our church family. We love our church family so much. This should be our heart. We love our church family so much that we help each other follow Jesus. We're committed to each other to help them follow Jesus. And in extreme cases, after usually long periods of pleading and praying, sometimes there comes a point where the church must remove people from membership. It is often done with tears. It is never done quickly. But it happens sometimes in churches where this gets to a point where for the love of those people who are teaching falsely, for the love of the church who are in danger of being influenced by these people, the leaders need to act and the church needs to act. If we don't do this, we might slip into lethargy. We won't be as watchful in protecting the gospel. We won't be able to hold up with beauty the picture of not only a beautiful gospel, but a picture of people who have been shaped by it. We want to be able to do that. Remember, we said at the beginning, watchful was the name of the man who oversaw the house that Christian was able to rest in. The palace beautiful. 
And I want to ask you that question, or this question. Does that word, watchful, describe the, your care for the church of God? Timothy was to be watchful. He's to watch to make sure the gospel is being preached. He was to watch his own appointment to the, the, the role of ministry, remembering his calling. He was to watch his own conscience. He was to watch the church carefully so that people were not bringing in false teachings. And Timothy is to be an example for all people who are in the church, right? All members are to be watchful. Are you watchful? Do you take responsibility and say, I'm here. This is my family. And because I love them, I'm going to watch. I'm going to watch after these things. The church of God is the most important institution in the world. Right? Nothing compares. Civilizations will rise and fall and the church of Jesus Christ will remain going on, advancing because Jesus himself is building it. It is our highest privilege to be a part of the body of Christ. It is our greatest joy and listen, our most sacred duty to watch after the church and its precious gospel. My prayer is that we would do this with renewed vigor with joy, and that we would all rise up to the calling that God has given us to serve the church of God before us. Let's pray. So Lord, it's an amazing thing that you've given us this opportunity to serve you. And we're reminded again of just the preciousness of the church. It was a church that you say in your word that you purchased with your own blood. The church is your bride. Lord, let us love the church like you do. Instill in us a passion for the church as you have. And so, Lord, then increase in us a watchfulness and a care for these issues that you've laid before us in your word. We ask that you would do this, not that we would receive glory, but that you would receive glory in the health of the church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.